is a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on December the 12th, 2008. I always advise newcomers, and there's always newcomers coming in all the time, every week, to listen to the show, and this is on RBN Live right now. I advise them to go to cuttingthroughthematrix.com website because I have all the previous shows from over the years archived there, and I try and fill in the big reality, the one you don't see, the one, in fact, the whole system tries to prevent you from seeing. I try to fill it in for you, fill in all the gaps, and show you the whys and wherefores of the big events that happen in your lifetime, mainly because they were planned before you were born, and the whole plan has been published over and over. Not only published, uh, even pub- they're publishing the next couple of centuries' plans right now. Here and there, you'll, you'll read the articles on it. Big international meetings are on the go all the time, and they have been for a very, very long time, all networking together, big foundations, NGOs, well-funded, and they're all on board with consensus towards the same destination, which is not too pleasant for most people, although the people themselves will never really understand it or know it, uh, even when it's happening to them. Also look into Alan Watt Sentinel.eu, where you can download transcripts which are off these particular past shows and you can download, print them up and pass them around to your friends. They're done in the various languages of Europe. We are going into this new system, the new system which is truly uh, the first scientifically controlled society. We've been under science for a long time. Statistics run our lives. Statistics run governments. They have departments of statistics. George Orwell talked about it when he published his book in 1948, a book called 1984. And you had this, this background of statistics being spewed out on the television screens back then, before they had television. And they knew everything was coming this way because they were all using, already using all the different graphs and data collection and projecting the future. And it was all to do with controlling and maintaining control over the general population. But what the public don't know is the big stick or the front to the new religion, the whole earth-based religion, as Gorbachev said over and over, and he has since from his first book and onwards, he said at every major speech, it must be based on a, a form of earth worship. And that's where they tie it in with science. That, that spews out all this data about CO2 and they call it climate change now that global warming has taken a nosedive. Uh, I just call it the weather since the weather has always been here. And that's going to control everyone's life because the full measure of security forces will eventually come into line to manage every world society, every 
society across the planet, every individual across the planet. And there'll be taxes and fines and imprisonment for breaking laws to do with this big invisible farce of climate change. As I say, they're already uh, trading carbon debt from one country to the other. Another big con game because the big corporations that were supposedly going to be the ones that had to pay these particular fees, you could buy them in advance, in fact, and were given them mainly for free by the, the, the economic union. Probably the same in America's too. And now they're making money off them. Some big corporations are $5 million to $5 billion richer than taxpayer pays at all. I'll be back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix talking about the big hoax that's going on, the biggest scandal in history, as some scientists are calling it, this whole nonsense over climate change, the, the watered-down term from global warming. It's now climate change officially. And as I say, that eventually will be the big stick to control every individual's life. But how far back does all this go? Because, you see, the big foundations that came out all over the world, in fact, in the 1800s, were really front organizations to offset this thing called democracy. And they were also set up to guide the world along a direct path. And foundations would fund all kinds of sides, even, even created sides, because it's good to have conflict between sides. And then you come to some agreements, and then you, from the agreement, you have a form of a treaty and then you're now on board in the same direction, you see. That's how you do it. You create the conflicts. And they said that they create wars right down to gender wars in the 1800s. And they published these books. Mind you, at that time, most folk couldn't read or write. So they published an awful lot around that period because only their own type, their own class, were reading it. And they had no objections. But... When we look over books, old books, by big world leaders, and they were world leaders because these characters sat in on the talks with many of the big foundations, big think tanks, to plan the future that we are living through right now, or the period we're living through right now, and the future that will come out of it. And traditionally, with some of these big think tanks, and organizations like the Royal Institute of International Affairs is one of the biggest ones out there with its, peer, its other sister companies, the Council on Foreign Relations, running the U.S. side. They knew back in the early 1920s where they were taking the world. And they also knew that most of them would not live to see the outcome. They could only do their part towards it. That's what Masons do. They model the terminology after architecture and after building, building, brick building, basically, big cathedrals. And if you look at the medieval times, it would take maybe five to seven generations of stonemasons to complete a cathedral, a single church. So each one prior to the last one would never see the, the completed thing in their lifetime. That's how they work, and that's why they use this terminology of 
Freemasonry. They know they'll never see it in their own lifetime. But let's go back to Bertrand Russell once again. Now, he never ever sat at a crystal ball or had such a fantastic mind that he had some sort of clairvoyance ability, some Nostradamic type ability to see into the future. He, whatever he wrote was because he'd already sat in on the big think tanks and in the higher sciences which were not available to the public. It's the same today. The higher sciences are kept secret from the public. We are living in the lowest level of science at the bottom here. And that's from professorship down. So whatever he said is because he was in on the planning of much of this. And this is from his own material from the Scientific Outlook, published in 1931, a couple of years before Huxley brought out his Brave New World. The reason they were all on board with their, their writings was because they were all sitting on the same think tanks. And these, they were also sitting on the policy decision-making organizations that were directing governments even then. So from page 248, he says, he's talking about the types of workers will be because he talked about breeding a governing class. Now, the reason he was talking about breeding them is because in his day they were already doing it. They've been doing it a hundred years before him. And you'll find that, uh, like Charles Darwin, for instance, you'll find, I think it was Ian Taylor wrote the book, uh, Darwin and the New World Order, In the Minds of Men, is the other title of it. He goes into genealogy of Darwin, and you'll see how interbred Darwin's family already was. And that's only one family. Many of the other ones were the same. The same with the Huxleys, the same with Bertrand Russell, and so on. They were breeding specific types to be rulers and other types to be world managers for running the, the, the politics and other ones to be the scientific elite. Huxley fell into the scientific elite type. And Russell himself was between the scientific elite and the ruling Minority, the dominant minority, as he called them. He says, as for the manual workers, they will be discouraged from serious thought. Now think about all the media that's put out today for the average person. The workers will be discouraged from serious thought. They will be made as comfortable as possible. And their hours of work will be much shorter than they are at present. This is 1931. They will have no fear of destitution or of misfortune to their children. As soon as working hours are over, amusements will be provided of a sort calculated to cause wholesome mirth, I mean, meaning basic slapstick comedy almost. That's what he means by that. Trivia. And to prevent any thoughts of discontent which otherwise might cloud their happiness. They're meant to just be happy, dumb, and stupid. Later on in the book, he, he actually says that. Dumb and stupid. He says, on those rare occasions when a boy or girl who has passed the age at which it is usual to determine social status shows such marked ability as to be, as to seem the intelligent or intellectual equal of the rulers. In other words, one's broken through their indoctrination. A difficult situation will arise requiring serious consideration if the youth is content to abandon his previous associates, his class, in other words, and to throw in his lot wholeheartedly with the rulers, the governing class, he may, after suitable tests, be promoted, but if he shows any regrettable solidarity with his previous associates, the rulers will reluctantly conclude 
that there is nothing to be done with him except to send him to the lethal chamber before his ill-disciplined intelligence has had time to spread revolt. See, revolution is something they were, they've always been terrified of. Remember Mao Zedong said he, he was afraid of an idea, someone with an idea. So the whole, the whole idea is if you have what it takes and you can verbalize it and you have the knowledge to communicate your thoughts to others on a certain scale, they'd have to bring you into the fold or eliminate you. It's the little chamber, he calls it. And they won't tolerate you walking around causing anarchy, as they like to term it. What is anarchy? Anarchy is any other system or way of living outside the one they have designed. On page 252 of the Scientific Outlook, Bertrand Russell says this, Scientific breeding. I've been talking a lot about sterility and so on in the last few shows. Scientific breeding in any truly scientific form would at present encounter insuperable obstacles both from religion and from sentiment. This is from 1931. To carry out or it out scientifically, it would be necessary as among domestic animals to employ only a small percentage of males for purposes of breeding. It may be thought that religion and sentiment will always succeed in opposing an immovable veto to such a system. I would I wish to think it's so, but I believe that sentiment is quite extraordinarily plastic, emotions are plastic, and that the individualistic religion to which we have been accustomed is likely to be increasingly replaced by a religion of devotion to the state. Devotion to the state. That's what's been brought in now. It's a world state, and it's be religion and, and devotion to the state, coupled with earth worship and so on. It's our home, etc. We can understand where our home is, so it's all nice and fuzzy and wonderful and warm. And we'll have these scientific elite dictating everything to us, the new priesthood. In page 243, he says, I think, therefore, that, that there is hardly any limit to the departures from traditional sentiment which science may introduce into the question of reproduction. If the simultaneous regulation of quantity and quality is taken seriously in the future, we may expect that in each generation some 25% of women, that's all they'll need, and some 5% of men will be selected to be the parents of the next generation the remainder of the population will be sterilized. Now, those who have followed the talks I've been given and have listened to the data I've been broadcasting about the sterilization of males, primarily males, and the hand of females, too, are having, having tremendous problems because in about the 60s, massive chlamydia broke out, long-term infection, and most of them are unaware they have it. It's sexually transmitted. In fact, and it's part of the reason they promoted the sexual revolution, because during it, m- many, many women uh, become sterilized. The, the, the egg can't get through the fallopian tubes because it's so heavily fibrosed with scar tissue through this long-term low-grade infection. So here he's saying here, 5% of men will be selected maybe 25% of females, the ones that they want, the stock that they want. And I've already gone through 
the Cold Springs Harbor, uh, Cold Water Harbor project of the Eugenic Society in America. Well, these characters were all in touch with Huxley's predecessors. There's a continuous movement in eugenics. It says, the rest of the population will be sterilized, which will no way interfere. This is, listen to this now, 1931. Which will no way interfere with their sexual pleasures. Because they only promote promiscuity, you see. But will merely render these pleasures destitute of social importance. There'll be no offspring. No offspring. This is planned a long time ago, and I've given you the facts of what's happened. It's up to you to put two and two together. I'll be back with more after this break. Cutting through the matrix, just putting the big coincidences together for you. Because that's how you're supposed to see it as you grow up in this world. Everything that happens is just one big foul up, unforeseen. And even though people talked about making this all happen many years ago, you'll think it's all just coincidence. They believe in coincidence theories one after another. This is rather extraordinary. I'll continue a little bit from this book, The Scientific Outlook, because what Russell is talking about here, he and others of his own peer group had discussed in many different forums. These guys were policymakers for, for basically for the world, for the world that was already underway in his life and that is here today. He's talking about the women who be selected to bear children and so on. It says, no obstacles will be placed upon their relations with sterile men. These are breeding women. It says, or upon the relations of sterile men and women with each other. And all the taboos will be gone, the social taboos. He said, um, but reproduction will be regarded as a matter which concerns the state and will not be left to the free choice of the persons concerned. We've already seen it in the newspapers, article after article of who has the right to pass on their genes. That's what it's all about, too, because it's all the same movement, right? Same foundations funding it. It says, perhaps we found that artificial impregnation is more certain and less embarrassing since it will obviate the need of any personal contact between father and mother of the prospective child. Sentiments of personal affection may still be connected with intercourse not intended to be fruitful, while impregnation will be regarded in an entirely different matter more in the light of a surgical operation, so that it will be thought not ladylike to have it performed in the natural manner. You can do anything with people, they're plastic, you see. The qualities for which parents will be chosen will differ greatly according to the status which it is hoped the child will occupy. In the governing class, this would be a, a self-perpetuating governing class, it's already here. You'll find most of the, the bureaucrats are fourth, fifth, sixth generation bureaucrats and they tend to all intermarry with each other. That's across the world. So he says, a considerable degree of intelligence will be demanded of parents. Perfect health will, of course, be indispensable. So long as gestation is allowed to persist to its natural period, mothers will also have to be selected by the capacity for easy delivery. He goes on to do about their, their frame, their pelvic system, and so on and so on. 
is the care of infants intended to belong to the governing class would seldom be left to the mothers. Mothers would be selected by their eugenic qualities, and these would not necessarily be the qualities required in a nurse. On the other hand, the early months of pregnancy might be more burdensome than at present since the fetus would be subjected to various kinds of scientific treatment. The fetus in the womb would be subject to various kinds of scientific treatment intended to affect beneficially not only its own characteristics but those of its possible descendants. They're talking about altering the gene makeup in the womb itself and that's just come out in the papers recently. And psychiatry also wants to get into the womb to prevent mental illness from happening. And this guy's writing this in 1931, and he was no prophet. The guy was no prophet. This is fathers would, of course, have nothing to do with their own children. There would, be, there would be, in general, only one father to every five mothers, and it's quite likely that he would never have even seen the mothers of his children while we have these seed banks today. And whoever they tell you the donor is, you don't know that for sure, do you? You don't know. You don't even know if the donor has been modified himself. It said that the sentiment of paternity would thus disappear completely. Probably in time the same thing would happen, though to a slightly less degree in regard to mothers. If birth were prematurely induced and the child separated from the mother at birth, maternal sentiment would have little chance to develop. Among the workers, it's possible that less elaborate care would be taken since it is easier to breed for muscle than to breed for brains. And it's not unlikely that women would be followed to bring up or be allowed to bring up their own children in the old-fashioned natural manner. There would not be among the workers the same need as among the governing class for fanatical devotion to the state. And there would not be, therefore, on the part of the government the same jealousy of the private affections. Among the, the governors, one must suppose all private sentiments would be viewed with suspicion. In other words, unemotion. They didn't want emotion. Emotion is to be to, taboo amongst the governing and scientific classes. Found upon and reported. Don't want that. You see, he goes on later in the book to talk about how, how emotion clouds the thoughts of good science. It gets in the way. This human part of us must be eliminated. You see. He says, what should, what should we think of the, the mental makeup of people in such a world? The manual workers may, I think, be fairly happy. One may assume that the rulers will be successful in making the manual workers foolish and frivolous. That's the culture they've given us. Look at any newspaper today. Look at Yahoo, Google, and all the rest of them, with the bimbos on the side, all the ridiculous stories of trivia mixed with horror, and nothing's real. It's a realistic Everything's a comedy, a bizarre, macabre comedy. One may assume that their rulers will be successful in making the manual workers foolish and frivolous. Work will not be too severe, and there will be endless amusements of a trivial sort. Owing to sterilization, love affairs need not have awkward consequences, so long as they are not between a man and woman, for both of them unsterilized. This has all happened, but it was planned long before it happened. I'll be back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Folks, I am Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, bringing you to a higher understanding that everything that's happening in your life was planned that way and introduced by big powers with lots of backing, political, governmental, bureaucratic, in cooperation with big companies like chemical companies and so on. The ones that made the cosmetics, that's who makes them, chemical companies. Chemical companies are part of the military-industrial complex by their very nature. And we have seen the reports, and they're all admitting it now, 50 years after the facts, that most men now are almost sterile. Oh, they just screwed up. They didn't know. They didn't know, even though when they discovered bisphenol A back in the 1800s, they knew what the effects it would be then on the male. They also knew the effects very shortly thereafter of how it would affect the male in a fetus in the womb from 8 to 12 weeks, the most crucial time for your sexual organs to develop. And we've all been under attack. To continue with the scientific outlook by Bertrand Russell, page 257 is talking about the easygoing and frivolous pleasures, etc., for the common people. Then he talks about the governing class. The psychology of the governors will be a more difficult matter. He'll be expected to display an arduous and hard-working devotion to the ideal of the scientific state and to the sacrifice of this ideal. All the softer sentiments, such as love of wife and children, he must go. Friendships between fellow workers, whether of the same or of different sexes, will tend to become ardent and will not infrequently overstep the limits which the public moralists will have fixed. In such a case, the authorities will separate the friends. Unless in doing so, they will interrupt some important research or administrative undertaking. So, basically, the whole sexual lifestyle will be turned upside down. And 30 years after Russell wrote his book, his book here, we had what we called the sexual revolution that came along with the 1960s, when they brought in the free love, the drugs, as Huxley also advocated, drugging society. And the whole agenda was, was just run right down through society so quickly and fast because it was well planned. Had lots of plan, planning in the past, years of planning. It's quite easy to implement it. It says here too, on 259, or 258, in such a world, though there may be pleasure, there will be no joy. The result would be a type displaying the usual characteristics of vigorous aesthetics. They'll be harsh and unbending, tending towards cruelty in their ideals and their readiness to consider that the infliction of pain is necessary for the public good. You've seen all the ninjas out there already to batter the people on the heads. They've been given 20-odd years with video games to desensitize them from violence and using violence. They were bred, in other words, and trained for their purpose today. We've also seen what's happening in science as they go further ahead and chop up bodies that are all donated to them like it was nothing. That also desensitizes the young scientists coming in to, to, to the job as part of it, desensitize them, just chopping up bodies. They're all donated by people who think it's going to help other people. Now we hang them on wires in art studios, again, to just 
this uh, to basically desensitize the whole public. So no joy, etc., etc. There will be harsh and unbending tendency towards cruelty in their ideals and their readiness to consider that the infliction of pain is necessary for the public good. Torture. Torture has been in the news now, and they've even said, well, it's, it's justifiable. Yeah, justifiable. I do not imagine that pain will be much inflicted as punishment for sin, since, since no sin will be recognized except, except insubordination and failure to carry out the purposes of the state. It is more probable that the sadistic impulses which the asceticism will generate will find their outlet in scientific experiment. The advancement of knowledge will be held to justify much torture of individuals by surgeons, biochemists, and experimental psychologists. That's already happening. As time goes on, the amount of added knowledge required to justify a given amount of pain will diminish, and the numbers of governors attracted to, to the kind of research necessitating cruel experiments will increase. Just as the sun worshippers of the Aztecs demanded the painful death of thousands of human beings annually, so the new scientific religion will demand its holocausts of sacred victims. Gradually the world will grow more dark and more terrible. Strange perversions of instinct will first lurk in the dark corners and then gradually overwhelm the men in high places. Sadistic pleasures will not suffer the moral condemnation that will be meted out to softer joys. Since, like the persecutions of the Inquisition, they will be found in harmony with prevailing asceticism. In the end, such a system must break down either in an orgy of bloodshed or in the rediscovery of joy. So Russell goes on and on and on. And he says that there should be a dictatorship. He is all for this particular one, this scientific dictatorship that will make all this happen. And that's the reality of these characters. They used to publish a lot of their agenda. They're becoming a bit more careful about what they give to the public. They use Madison Avenue, as, as Russell and others and Huxley suggested they do, to basically propagandize us. You propagandize the public with the, the data. And in other words, you rephrase it and make it sound kind of nice and fuzzy. And the public accept it quite quite naturally. But it's interesting here that they were talking about two, a, a method of uniting the world. Because in a world without war, obviously, the government has a hard time keeping control of people because government's main function, which it has been for many centuries, is at least the front that it uses to protect people as citizens. And without war, what are they going to do? They would need terror everywhere or some new bogeyman. Russell said, there is no nonsense so arrant, meaning so, so stupid, crazy, and ridiculous. There is no nonsense so arrant that it cannot be made the creed, the belief of the vast majority by adequate government action. And he already went through the ways of that, and I've done it too, repetition, 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 climate change, climate change, climate change, global warming, global warming, global warming, and so on. And we have Gorbachev admitting that he's an atheist, and yet he admits as well he's part of the team that is helping create this global religion that's tying in with what they call governance, the planned society. It's also going to use the Chinese communist ideas of, for the first stages, one child per family. They're going to really tax people to death. People places like Australia for having more than one child, the 
because they'll be claiming they're going to put more CO2 out into the atmosphere. There's no nonsense so arrant that it cannot be made the creed, the belief of the vast majority by adequate government action. And here we have world meetings on this farce. I see a farce, as I said the other day, where hundreds and hundreds of scientists are leaving the IPCC to save their credibility because they admit the whole thing is bogus, is run on bogus science. And because all the data is proving we're in a cooling period, and I should know that, I've got three feet of snow out here, and it's minus 20 right now and dropping. Then they've changed it to climate change, which I just call the weather, because that's what climate change is. It's called the weather. The weather is always changing. It was an article that came out today, and it's from Google News. It's also, I think, on the AFP. It says, China welcomes EU climate deal. It says, U.S. must do more. China is going to tell the U.S. to do more. Poznan, Poland, China's top negotiator at the U.N. climate talks, I call it weather talks, welcomed the climate pact adopted by EU leaders on Friday as a positive step but criticized carbon reduction goals set by the U.S. President-elect Barack Obama as too weak. In an interview with AFP, Sue Wee said the deal struck at the European Union summit in Brussels as a positive step. We welcome that, Sue said. It's important that the European Union continue to take the lead in the international cooperation to address the weather. He added, though, maybe some of the positions have been watered down compared to 2007. This is a Chinaman with a sense of humor. The weather has been watered down. Of course, we understand in the face of the international financial crisis, countries put more efforts to address that crisis, but we think measures to address the weather should not in any way be delayed or watered down. Well, isn't it amazing again how all this is coming together and you would think if the world were real and portrayed the way it is, as real, that during a financial catastrophe, as we're going through now, which is brought on and deliberate, you would offset other things so it can all survive. But no. They've got the knife in your belly and they want to twist it at the same time. So that tells you there's another agenda at work here, you see. And it's agenda to bring the whole planet down into a new system of economics where you will serve the world state, you will work for the world state, you will serve the world state. That's what's coming out of this new economic system tied in with this weather nonsense. Su, this, this man, the Chinese man, it says, whose fast industrializing nation has overtaken the U.S. as the world's leading emitter of CO2, qualified this. I also heard the very firm political commitments from the ministers of the EU and from the European Environmental Commissioner, Stavros Dimas, he said. The European so-called 2020-20 package. That's interesting. See, I've given you three twenties there. And you put three two, three two, three two is six, six, six. They love their jokes. They love their jokes out in front of plain view to the public. It says the package seeks to cut green gas emissions by 20% before 2020. That's your 2020-20, three 
T20cc. Three times 20, three times 20, three times 20, is 666. And they want to cut uh, it up by 20%. The Chinese negotiator said Obama's plan to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by 2020 was well short of the mark. This is from China that doesn't have any uh, problems with uh, emitting black stuff out of all their chimneys. They've, they've killed off half the rivers there with pollution. And they're telling the U.S. because they're all in the same scam together. I was going to say that that Huxley himself talked about uh, this world oligarchy running the world made up of the elite families of each country, the ones who'd gone through the Darwinian process of selective breeding, got very wealthy through all means possible and kept breeding with their own kinds. They would run the world. And they are running the world. So the Chinese elite, you see, and there are very old families in China that came through the communist uh, system, and they're just as wealthy as ever, and even more so now. Uh, They're also in on the act, and they still run China. So here he says, he says, we don't think it's ambitious enough, said Su, top official for climate change or weather change at the National Development and Reform Commission, Beijing. Under the Kyoto Protocol, which the United States signed, but then refused to ratify. See, that's been the, the, the strategy the U.S. has played since it created the League of Nations. They created it, and then because of the outcry at home, they didn't, they didn't uh, go in with it, even though they put an official representative there with full voting powers, and the public didn't know that. They didn't know that until they created the United Nations, the Phoenix Bird, from the League of Nations. It says... Even if the United States met Obama's 2020 target, it would mean that they are 20 years behind what is required, said Sue. Do you realize to meet those targets, they're going to have to cut down or shut down every coal plant there is? It means you've got to have fewer people breathing air. It means you'll have pretty well no vehicles on the road at all. And that is their game, because in Agenda 21, out of the same United Nations, we're supposed to all live in these habitat areas, and for the next 30-odd years, the population is to gradually dwindle. I've read their, their own reports from the top think tanks from the United Nations on population control. I've read the same reports from, from the think tanks that work for NATO, the NATO countries, the British military and the American military, and all agree that just by magic, the population after 2030 is to go drastically low, just drastically decline. Why is that? It's because we'll all be sterile. They know all this. They know all this stuff. And the fewer people, the better. You know, the Department of Food for the World Health, for the World, the, the United Nations, the Department of Food and Agriculture have said that they could feed maybe a few million people living in a high-tech industrialized society at a good comfort of level that that society can provide. Or, or this is the, the other thing they could do, we could feed, I think it was 8 billion people at the level of peasants. So why are alternative peasants, you see, living on the land? Not that the want us on the land or would ever allow that to happen. Or they're going to have to reduce the population drastically down to a few million. 
And that's been the agenda, to say, from before the days of Bertrand Russell. It's quite fascinating to see the things that have been going on. Quite fascinating. Uh, I saw an article today where the, the cola companies have been trying to get a big inroad into India. And it's so wonderful when people from a different culture have a different worldview, a different way of seeing something, seeing the same thing from, and from a different uh, vantage point. And they found in India that it was, it was cheaper to buy coke as a pesticide for their plants and the farms than to buy the regular pesticides because coke contained, I think, 20 to 30% more pesticide in it than the stuff they buy. We already know what it does to the people in the West. And I've given talks about this in the past. But of course, it's just one big screw-up nobody knew, right? Well, they always knew. So why did they let it happen? Why did they let it keep happening? Well, we know, because that's the agenda. Here's an article here along the same agenda from the London Times. This was edition one mon- Monday 11th. Oh, sorry, Monday the 11th of May, 1987. Smallpox vaccine triggered AIDS virus by Pierce Wright, science editor. The AIDS epidemic may have been triggered by the mass vaccination campaign which eradicated smallpox. The World Health Organization, which mass demanded a 13-year campaign of studying new evidence suggesting that immunization with smallpox vaccine awakened an unexpected dormant immunodefense virus. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, tying together all the coincidences for you. And it's up to you where you want to take them or deny them. But the facts are the facts. I'm reading an article from the London Times, May 11th, 1987, which I'm sure is a cover in itself. It's covering up as a scary uh, damage control, because what we all know at the time, those with a memory, is that sure enough, it was in the wake of all these injections, these inoculations for smallpox that left this big massive trail behind it of people suddenly with HIV infections and AIDS, which are technically two different things. To some experts fear that an obliterating one disease, another disease was transformed by a minor endemic illness of the third world into the current pandemic. While doctors now accept that vaccinia can activate other viruses, the smallpox, they're divided about whether it was the main catalyst to the AIDS epidemic. The advisor to the World Health Organization who disclosed the problem, I told the Times, I thought it was just a coincidence until we studied the latest findings about the reactions which can be caused by vaccinia. Now I believe the smallpox vaccine theory is the explanation to the explosion of AIDS. In obliterating one disease, another was transformed. I would say one was introduced. Further evidence comes from the Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington. While a smallpox vaccine is no longer kept for public health purposes, new recruits to the American Armed Services are immunized as a precaution against possible biological warfare. Routine vaccination of a 19-year-old recruit was a trigger for stimulation of dormant HIV virus into AIDS, full-blown AIDS. 
This discovery of how people with subclinical HIV infection are at risk of rapid development of AIDS as a vaccine-induced disease was made by a medical team working with Dr. Robert Redford, or Redfield at Walter Reed. The recruit who developed AIDS after vaccination had been healthy throughout high school. He was given multiple immunizations followed by his first smallpox vaccination. It says two and a half weeks later he developed fever, headaches, neck stiffness and night sweats. Three weeks later he was admitted to Walter Reed suffering from meningitis and rapidly developed further symptoms of AIDS and died after responding for a short time to treatment. There was no evidence that the recruit had been involved in any homosexual activity. In describing the discovery in a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine a fortnight ago, the Walter Reed team gave a warning against a plan to use modified versions of the smallpox vaccine to combat other diseases in developing countries. Now, I've already given, gone through the agenda that was written a long time ago with big uh, top economists involved, but they talked about the necessity to rapidly bring down the birth rate and increase the death rate of the third world because they couldn't see them coming in to a productive 8 to 5 type society, Monday to Friday type deal. They're too natural for that. And then you have this coming out. And don't forget, too, it was the World Health Organization that did sterilize millions of women in Africa and India when they gave them what they pretended was a free tetanus shot for all pregnant women. I think at the time, they all had abortions immediately and they ended up being sterile because whatever was injected into them went straight to their ovaries, caused massive inflation, uh, inflammation and sterilized them. That was admitted to. Well, that's the music coming in. So from the snowy north, up in Ontario, Canada, from Hamish and myself, it's good night, may your God or your God or your gods go with you.